We're going to come to a time in our service, as always, we're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, whatever it is, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. We'll start today at verse 15. If you were with us last week, uh, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and has invited dad and the whole family to now move down to Egypt. Uh, just to catch you up in that part, that happens. Dad comes, everybody moves down to Egypt. But Jacob, Joseph's father, is quite aged. He's old, and at some point he does die. Uh, they have a huge funeral for him that uh, Pharaoh kind of allows to take place in this massive gathering of people. And then, actually, we'll start at verse 14, just to get us into it. We read this. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us a command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's God's word. Let me pray for us briefly and then we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, would you illumine now the preaching of your word. Open our hearts and our minds to receive the work you want to do in us. May we be receptive to it, God. May we open ourselves to be put under the authority of what you want to say to us. We know your work is good. Accomplish it in each one of us, I pray. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. My guess is that uh, most of us are familiar with the phrase, always read the fine print. Or, you better read the fine print first. Which apparently has been around uh, since the early 1900s and used both literally and figuratively in order to refer to the dangers of signing anything when we haven't understood the, the fullness of what it is we're signing and agreeing to. It's a phrase most of us use. We, we believe that that's true and maybe you've said it to someone yourself before. but. According to a 2011 survey published in The Guardian, just 7% of people, 7% of people actually read the full terms and conditions before buying a product or service online. Just 7% of people, leading apparently 1 in 10 to find themselves locked into a longer contract than they ever imagined, and 1 in 20 having to pay more than they wanted to because they couldn't get out of a hotel or holiday bookings. And to be fair, I mean, the terms and conditions are boring, right? I mean, they're long, they're filled with all kinds of technical, legal language, which just kind of like makes us check out. 
And so, yeah, we're, we're intimidated by it. And so it, it makes sense why we don't read it. I'm not trying to shame anyone this morning into reading the fine print. I'm just trying to point out the fact that it's a message that we preach more than we practice. But although the majority of us will likely continue to not read the terms and conditions, uh, even understanding the dangers of that possibility or what's possible if we don't, there is at least one exception, one, one thing that will make even the most hardened, I don't want to read the fine print person, still want, at least maybe want to read it, even if they still don't. And that is, whenever an offer or a proposal of some kind sounds too good to be true. Like most of you who are my age or older, I only need to say the words to you, Columbia Music House, <laughs> BMG Music Club, and you know what I'm talking about. You could get 12 CDs for just one penny. <laughs> Sounds like a good deal. I mean, modern day example of that would be you walk into the store and you see that new, brand new iPhone 12, zero dollars. It sounds great, but all of a sudden it triggers in us a little, okay, yeah, but Maybe, maybe I do want to see the contract, actually, and kind of look at what it is that I'm signing up for. And the reason we do that is because of an even more deeply held belief that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And I bring that up as we conclude our summer teaching series this morning, Through the Life of Joseph, Meant for Good, because we see another offer here in our passage today, that also sounds too good to be true. Namely, the offer of grace. That offer of, of grace in the message of the gospel. It just sounds too good to be true. Uh, I love, like, I always remember my friend and brother down in Atlanta, uh, Pastor Leonce Crump. He, he talks about how every time I share the gospel with someone, I present this offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. People always assume I've got another hand hiding behind my back. It just sounds like, okay, yeah, but, but what do I got to do? And we'll talk this morning about the alien anxiety of grace, as well as the patient pursuit of grace as we dig into our passage this morning. Like, what is it about grace that causes us to be afraid, that causes us to be fearful? And, and the way that grace just continues this beautiful, patient, tireless pursuit of us, even when we forget about it, even when we misunderstand it. What I want to say to you right at the outset is uh, this, this message is for all of us this morning. This is a message for you whether grace is an entirely new concept to you or whether you're someone who would say you've already experienced the ultimate demonstration of grace through salvation with Christ. Because here's the thing. What we're going to see in this passage today is that the offer of grace seems too good to be true before we receive it. That makes sense. We can't understand how we can get something for nothing. But the offer of grace can also seem too good to be true even after we've already received it. Leading us to go back to or revert to trying to pay off a debt that's already been paid, to earn an acceptance we already have. So let's, let's look at this together. Let's, let's learn together. If you've closed your Bible, your Bible app or whatever, would you open it again with me? A passage here, Genesis 50, starting at verse 15. Follow along with me as we... We dig into the wonderful messiness of grace and also close out our series this morning, which we're looking at, has shown us again and again, I see, that the work of God in our lives, however messy, is always meant for good. So let's look first of all at 
The alien anxiety of grace. The alien anxiety of grace. So, just to catch you up, if you weren't with us last week, or just to remind you if you were, Joseph's brothers had returned to Egypt with their brother Benjamin as requested, and by means of one last test of his brothers, Joseph reveals both the truly transformed nature of his brother's hearts, as well as his identity now. He reveals that he is, in fact, the brother that they sold into slavery 22 years ago. But again, where they expected judgment, where they expected condemnation at the exposing of their guilt, Joseph responded instead to them with grace, treating them as a brother rather than a judge, and saying to them, here, this is from chapter 45, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these last two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. <coughs> and this is what grace looks like in action. Like well, That's what we're seeing in, in the way that Joseph responded to his brothers. A settling of accounts, as it were, where a debt is paid, in this case now, not by the one who committed the offense, but rather absorbed by the one against whom the offense was committed. And, and that's actually, by the way, a fundamental concept that we always need to keep in mind whenever we're talking about grace or forgiveness, and that is this, that, that grace is never free. The, the offer of grace is absolutely free, but that grace being offered is not free. It comes with a cost. We can't just simply just ignore the, the, the damage that's being done, sweep it under the rug. Somebody always has to pay for the debt to be canceled point of grace is that the familiar expected roles of who pays and who is comp compensated are just flipped on their heads. That's, that's what grace is, what it looks like. But, of course, that's the very thing that makes grace this alien concept to us. And not alien like green guys from outer space, but alien as in like foreign, un unexpected. It, it's not happening. Like, like this isn't how we expect things to happen. And so, as you probably experienced in your own life, when, when things happen in unfamiliar, unexpected ways, it, it can build and create anxiety in us because we don't know what to expect. And as we come to this closing passage of Genesis 50, we see just how alien, just how absolutely too good to be true, this grace that Joseph offers to his brothers is because even after having already received grace from them, from Joseph, which that's what we saw in that passage I read from chapter 45, they still revert back to their familiar expected ways of understanding things. They still, they're saying to themselves like, yeah, I know Joseph said he forgave us. I know he said he, he sees God's hand working through all of this to, to save many lives and to, to, keep, to keep us from, from starving in the famine, but you know what? This isn't, this is this not how things work. Somebody, when, when you commit an offense against somebody, that has to be repaid somehow. It can't just be forgiven. And so because grace is this alien concept to his brothers and they still can't wrap their heads around the fact that the debt they owe Joseph is actually forgiven. The brothers now, at the death of their father, have a great deal of anxiety that's created in them. Because they believe now that, well, Joseph was simply just holding out. He was just waiting for dad to die before he 
could really treat his brothers the way that he wanted. That's the only way they can make sense of this. It must be that he was just holding out. Uh, Gordon Wenham puts it this way. Now with their father dead and the great funeral over, they are gripped by fear that all Joseph has done was motivated, was motivated by affection for Jacob, not out of real love for them. And although what we read in verses 16 and 17, look with me there, this, this may have been the words that Jacob would have wanted to leave Joseph had he actually known what his brothers had done to him. Basically, every commentator I read agreed. This text message, this telegram that they send to Joseph with, these are dad's dying wishes, pretty confident that they're making this up. This is, this is not anything Jacob actually said. And if you look at Joseph's response at the end of verse 17, he weeps. It seems pretty clear that, that Joseph knows this isn't an actual message from his father as well. But why would he weep at that? Why would he be so overwhelmed with emotion again when they bring this message to him? I think two reasons. One is probably just because Joseph had this incredibly close connection with his father. It was deep, it was, it was powerful, and, and so this reminder of his father whom he's just buried brings up these emotions in his heart. But I think ultimately what's really causing Joseph to weep is that his brothers don't yet believe the grace that he's offered to them. They haven't, they haven't let it just he hasn't fully received, even though he's given them evidence after evidence of the fact that, listen, I've forgiven you. I'm providing for you. Why won't you understand? And, 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 and so he's, he's grieved by the fact that they're still trying to earn an acceptance through manipulation, through, through trying to work off their debt as his slaves, and it just, it just literally breaks his heart. It leads him to tears. And I don't know how or in what way that hits you as, as you hear that response to grace, but man, when I hear that and read that, I, I see myself, I see my own response. I see, first of all, the foolish, fumbling, anxious attempts of someone that can't seem to wrap their head around the fact that, that, that grace has been shown to me, that I literally have nothing left to pay. And so each time I'm reminded of a sin in the past or a sin again, I just immediately revert back to trying to pay off a debt that's already been paid for. Or, another, alternatively, the, the, another way, if it's not guilt that's driving my anxiety, it's in losing my sense of control. Grace can cause me to lose my sense of control. Some of you remember a conversation Tim Keller recounts of a woman who came up to him after a service one day saying to him, I don't like this whole concept of salvation by grace. It doesn't sound good to me at all. When he pressed her a little more, just ask her, what do you mean? T tell me what, what, why you say that. She said, I don't want, uh, or sorry, I want to be able to contribute to my salvation in some way, however small that contribution might be, because then at least I have something to bargain with. If salvation is truly by grace alone and I don't contribute anything to it, then that means there is nothing God cannot ask of me. I wonder when you think about those two anxious responses to grace, if you see either one or both of those in your own heart. Thing is, with either response, if you think of grace like a heart transplant, it's like grace is, is in me now, it's, it's working like grace is supposed to, just like a heart works, like a heart's supposed to, regardless of whose body it's in, and yet my body keeps trying to reject it as an alien invader instead of a life-saving addition. 
Well, no, I, I don't know exactly what it looks like. I do believe that it grieves our Father's heart as well to see us respond to His grace in these anxious ways, just in the same way that it grieved Joseph's heart to see his brothers respond to His grace in this way. But you see, this is why I believe we need the message of the Gospel. And we need it again and again, not, not just at the beginning of a new life in Christ, to, to see, as pastor and author J.D. Greer said so well, that, that the gospel is not simply the diving board into which we, one enters into the Christian life, but the pool in which we swim. We always need to return to this message again because we forget it. We keep rejecting that grace even though it's in us. And I think that the more that we remind ourselves of it, the more that we just sit in the truths of that message again and again, allow ourselves to truly believe that the debt-canceling work of Jesus on the cross has accomplished everything for us. As well as all the incredible benefits of that grace, which we talked about last week, that there is now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. That, that the law and all its legal requirements have, have been canceled now in full. We are a new creation. We, we, are, we are now a son or a daughter of God. The more that we sit in those truths, I think the more our anxious striving will at last begin to give way to grateful worship, and the more we'll surrender to His grace in our lives, resting in and not resisting the truth that His efforts alone have set me free. No, I, I don't think shifting to that understanding of grace from anxiety to acceptance is, is easy. It isn't. And no, nor is that kind of an overnight thing. I just decide one day that I'm going to believe that, and I do. It, it, it's a process that we go through again and again. But I think the more that we're able to do it, the more that we're able to rest in those truths and truly, truly believe them and live in the goodness of them, the more we'll see and the more we'll be able to truly enjoy and experience the patient pursuit of grace. Patient pursuit of grace. Where you see that in our passage today is there in verse 19, if you want to look with me. Rather than responding to his brother's continued doubt, continued disbelief at his offer of grace with anger, with incredulous belittling, like, guys, what's the matter with you? How dumb do you have to be? Like, I've been setting up your homes, I'm giving you everything. How can you doubt that I, like, he, he doesn't. Instead, Joseph simply extends the exact same offer of grace to his brothers that he had given to them before, humbly reminding them, there in verse 19, do not fear, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, so do not fear, I will provide for you and for your little ones. It's as though Joseph's strategy to convince his brothers that his offer of grace was true, that it was genuine, was literally just like, I'm just going to keep telling you just going to keep reminding you and, and, and demonstrating that reality to you again and again until you get it. Until at last it sinks in that there's nothing more to pay. There's nothing more to do. You don't need to fear that the grace I've offered is not true or that you're going to lose it somewhere. Actually, you see a similar pattern of a patient pursuit of grace in the parable of the two lost sons in Luke 15. Where first of all, the father watches patiently for his lost son and then dismisses the guilt-laden offer to be treated as one of his slaves or hired men 
from the younger son with embracing, with rejoicing. Or the way that the, the father goes out to the older brother, goes out and pleads with him to come into the celebration. The son who thought he had earned his father's uh, acceptance through obedience. In both cases, that, that patient pursuit of grace of these two sons, what it meant was welcome. It meant an embrace. It meant a front door that's never locked, no matter how far they wandered or how much they misunderstood the gracious heart of their father. And as you think about what the patient pursuit of grace looks like for you and for me, I believe it looks the exact same way for us as it did for Joseph's brothers, as it did for those two sons in Jesus' parable. <clears throat> patient pursuit of grace for us means welcome. It means a front door that's never bolted, a, a porch light that's always left on. For the one who's abandoned their father and their faith and gone off in search of meaning and purpose outside of a relationship with him, it means embrace, not judgment. It means celebration, not condemnation, is all that awaits you the moment you turn your heart back towards home. You know what it looks like when, when I think about the patient pursuit of grace? It reminds me of a story uh, many years ago now. I can't remember how long ago. I used to take my daughters down to Maple Grove Park. We lived in Carisdale, and we'd walk down to Maple Grove Park. And one day, I can't remember what I did, but I highly frustrated and annoyed my oldest daughter. And she stormed off into the park. I don't want to be around you. Stormed off into the park. And, and I guess I just had a moment of like clarity. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't just grab her. And so I just... I just followed it about 50 yards away, just, just there, communicating presence without, you know, hovering. And each time she saw me, she'd move off somewhere else. I think that's exactly what the patient pursuit of grace looks like for us. Just a father who is not coercive, not pushing or forcing, but just there, following, waiting for us to, alas, get tired of our wandering and return for the ones seeking to leverage control with God through their religious performance, it means a continued, patient presentation of Jesus of the scars in His hands and His feet and His side, which are the receipts of a debt that's already been paid in full. There's nothing more for you to do. Both examples of the welcome of grace that we see in the life of Joseph, a welcome that I know I've experienced again and again in my life, and I pray that you've experienced it as well yourself you'd experience it again today especially if you would say yeah, i've experienced the anxiety of grace i pray you'd also experience the welcome of it as we close out this message and this series this morning i want to end where we began all the way back at the beginning with now that we have this much more comprehensive, on-the-ground look at the sweep of these events in Joseph's life that, that have taken him and formed him from a proud, arrogant, young teenager into a, a benevolent, high, gracious prince over all the land of Egypt, where despite all the betrayal, the injustice, the, the struggle and suffering Joseph had to endure to get there, he can still stand before those who committed the greatest evil against him and say, do not fear. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
And as I said, ultimately what we see is the outworking in Joseph's life of a passage we often quote from Romans 8. eight Romans 8, 28. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His good purpose. The, the point is, the, the blessing of this is that we, we, we see it worked out real time in somebody's life. We see what that actually looks like by going through the events of Joseph's life. And yet what Joseph says to his brothers also raises an important question, and I don't want us to leave the story of Joseph without at least trying to address it in some way. Namely, what does Joseph mean when he says that God meant all that awful stuff that happened to him to happen? Like, I think it's easier for us to, to see and understand the first part of what he said, like, Joseph's brothers absolutely meant evil against him. Potiphar's wife meant evil for Joseph. Even that cupbearer, maybe he had a good reason, but he, he meant evil for Joseph in the way that he forgot to mention him to Pharaoh, left him to rot in prison for another two years. They all committed injustices against Joseph for which they are responsible. But what are we supposed to do with the second half of Joseph's statement when he says that God meant for all that stuff to happen? It's a question that becomes immediately personal when we stop talking about Joseph's life and start talking about our own. Consider the injustices, the offenses, the abuses that have been committed against us over the courses of our lives. Because, yeah, sure, we can see how those who committed those actions against us, all those painful things, they meant evil against us. But what? What, what are we saying? God, God, God meant for me to be abused? God meant for me to be abandoned or assaulted. God meant for my marriage to fall apart. God meant for me to lose my job, to, for my friends to humiliate me. He meant for me to lose my whole house in a fire or lose my grandmother to COVID-19. God meant that? And in response to those deeply painful, very personal questions, first of all, I'd want to acknowledge with Joseph that I am not in the place of God. And I wouldn't dare to even presume to try to assign any kind of meaning or purpose to your suffering myself, nor should anyone else. All, all I'd want to do actually is just, just sit with you and listen. Just groan and, and weep with you at those things that happened to you. And then, and, and only if you wanted, only if you, you were felt ready to, to listen, would I want to come back to the story of Joseph and just trace once again the events of his life and ponder and wonder with you at the mystery of how all those painful events that Joseph had to endure, which seemed cruel, which seemed purposeless in the moment, truly did bring about the good work in Joseph's life and brought about the saving of many lives. And then, of course, I'd want to turn you to the truly innocent suffering and sorrow and injustice of Jesus, Son of God. And remember what Peter tells us in Acts 4, how every person, every circumstance, every event that brought about this greatest act of evil in the universe happened. They all gathered together to do whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. And we know and have experienced, I pray, that, that we're direct beneficiaries of all the good and the saving of many lives that came about from all that Jesus endured Himself. 
And in light of that direct evidence, as well as acknowledging with the scriptures that God is not the author of evil, conclude as much as I think is possible for any of us to conclude in this life about Joseph's words and how it relates to our own sorrows and sufferings. Tim Keller, I think, says it so simply and powerfully. It says this, what we can conclude at least is that God overcomes evil not merely by stopping it, which he does finally, but by so thwarting its destructive purposes and power that it ends up being used instead to further the saving objectives of God. That God is so high and sovereign and ruling above all the events of earth that even the most awful, horrific things that have happened to us, that have happened to others, they end up somehow accomplishing his good purposes. They're robbed of their evil power to accomplish what was meant for evil and instead accomplish God's good purposes. That's, that's the amazing work of a God who is truly in control, who is not an ambulance driver that shows up to the things that happen to us trying to help. To remind ourselves as well in the midst of questioning and pondering these things together that just like Joseph we haven't read the end of the story because maybe we say well I don't see the good that's happened what good to remind ourselves that neither did Joseph For 13 years as a slave and as a prisoner he had no idea what good God was bringing about and only in seeing his brothers fulfill his dream from years before bowing down did he finally see the good work of God all those years later. I pray this has been a fruitful, meaningful, really transforming experience these past eight weeks sitting in the life of Joseph. I know it has been for me. And as I pray to each week, I trust that seeing the outworking of Romans 8:28, real time, lived out in the life of Joseph, that it has. It's increased your understanding of and your appreciation for the work of God in your own life. What we've clearly been shown again and again, really the true gift of having this story recorded for us in the Bible is it shows us the work that God began in you and that He promises to bring to completion. However difficult, however wrong, however incomprehensible it may seem in the moment, is always meant for good. <laughs>